Well, this morning we uh, will be turning in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. That's our scripture reading today. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. And then we'll turn uh, back to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel. We're going to close out chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verses 14 to 23, before 1 Samuel was on a brief hiatus for the next couple of weeks. So again, our scripture reading is Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to give your full attention to God's Word. It is about to be read before you in your presence today. It is the Lord speaking to His people as He has done for millennia. And we get to join in that glad throng of people. Countless, innumerable people who have heard God's Word spoken to them. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skill, skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. 
And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our great and good God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are able to go through it week by week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're thankful that your word contains the fullness of your revelation to your people. And that in your word we have all that we need to know about you and about your plan for our salvation. Lord, we confess, we acknowledge that your word doesn't give us everything. It doesn't give us all knowledge about you because you alone possess that knowledge of yourself. But you've given us everything that we need to know. And from your word, we know that you are good. We know that you are holy, that you are just. We know that you hate sin. And yet we know that you have shown steadfast love to your people throughout all generations. We're grateful to you for the portions of your word we have heard read to us today. And we pray now, dear Lord, for your blessings upon the preaching of your word. We pray that you would be with the one who preaches and the ones who hear. Above all else, O Lord, before any other thing, we pray that you would be glorified as your word is preached. And then and only then, O Lord, we pray that you would build up your people, that you would encourage us in our faith, that you would call us to increased, an increased desire to bring glory to your name. We pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. There was a a theologian who once said that the Christian view of God in relation to man must always begin from the idea that God at the very beginning of history was favorably disposed to mankind. From the very beginning, before the fall... From the very beginning, God delighted in his creation. He delighted in his creatures. And specifically, and most importantly for us, he delighted in humanity. Now that is difficult for us to remember or even sometimes to accept as true. This side of mankind's fall into sin because much of what we experience in this life is under the common curse. And so we're far more prone to cry out against that cursed nature of the world in which we live and under which we exist than to cry out in praise to our Creator, acknowledging His goodness and His love for us. Even though we seem to be caught off guard by riots and looting and death and disaster, we've pretty much as a species accepted strife and struggle as our lot in life. And so you will hear people, even Christians, questioning how God can be so good in a world full of hurt and pain. So it's important for us to remind ourselves that God's relationship with humanity did not begin that way. Cornelius Van Til writes, when he made creatures, he made them lovable like himself. He made man perfect. And loving mankind, he offered them eternal life. It was seriously meant. It was no farce. 
Even before the fall, God held out to Adam and Eve that promise of eternal life. But if only our first parents, we lament, had been able to make it through that probationary period, no matter how long, no matter how brief, if only they had been able to be obedient, we would never have known the struggle and strife that is our daily existence. And so that relationship changed, of course, when Adam sinned. And because Adam represented all of humanity in the Garden of Eden, everyone who would descend from him except one, I think you know who I'm speaking of, except one, when Adam sinned and fell, we all sinned and fell in him. And so we all live under this common curse. Now, we've grown used to the life that we've carved out on this accursed rock. And even those who don't accept the Bible's account of the fall of mankind into sin know deep down that things aren't the way they were meant to be. The curse of God for Adam's sin was worldwide and for all mankind. So we don't deserve any good thing. And yet, that, that, that nagging sense in the back of our minds, and even for, for sinful, unregenerate people, that nagging sense in the back of our minds that something is not right, that something is not fair, that there is injustice in the world, it is a reminder, it is, it is a clue to the fact that we know. As a species, as humanity, we know that something is not right, even though for many people they can't quite put their finger on what it is. In our passage this morning, we, we have Saul, who sinned so grievously against God. And we see that he benefits from the comforts of music. Now, whether or not Saul was an Old Testament believer, and I know that it's, it's, we're probably divided on that in this church. There's no consensus on that. Was he a believer? Was he not? If he was a believer, how could he do the things that he did? But still, God was so good to him. Whether Saul was a, an Old Testament believer or not, he had not done anything to deserve the good gifts that God gave to him. Even after the Lord removed his anointing from Saul. He hadn't done anything to deserve it, and yet he is blessed by God's common grace, even while under God's common curse. As we work our way through this passage, I would ask you to keep this in mind. God's common grace is a reminder to all of humanity that He is a good and loving God, despite the suffering that we endure in this life. One more time. God's common grace is a reminder to all of humanity that He is a good and loving God, despite the suffering that we endure in this life. Now, now, most human beings, and, and we sometimes, I think, must admit, we ourselves do this. We, we work at it from the other angle, don't we? All of the suffering in this life, the evil that we see, the injustices that we are witnesses to, well, that can only serve as proof that if there's a God, He can't be good. But we as believers in Christ must choose to look at it from the other angle, the other direction. That God's common grace is proof that He is a good and loving God. The sermon today has only two points. The first point is titled, The Hard Providences of the Lord. The second point, Good Gifts from Above. 
So again, hard providences of the Lord and good gifts from above. Those are the two points for the sermon today. And so let's look now at the first part of the sermon, hard providences of the Lord. When we jump into this passage, verse 14 challenges us right off the bat. We read there, Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. Now it's not just one thing that we find in this verse that is challenging. It's at least two. And you may be able to find others. I've just highlighted two of the challenges that this verse poses to us. First, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And second, the harmful spirit from God that tormented Saul. These two things are challenging for us. They, they unsettle us. What in the world does this mean? How is it possible that if someone has received the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit could depart from them? And what does it mean that a harmful spirit would be sent from God to Saul to torment him? Now, you have probably felt the tension from the time that Saul first entered the picture in 1 Samuel chapter 9. When he's chosen to be king, and especially in chapter 10, when he's anointed as king and the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. You remember this, this, this picture of him uh, having the Spirit rushing on him, and he begins to prophesy with these other prophets. And we read there that he was given a new heart. The tension comes from reading those verses and being aware of what Saul would do later on. And, and most of us, if we've, we've spent any time reading about Saul, we've spent any time reading through 1 Samuel, we see, and, and the coming chapters are going to show this, it's going to give us a picture, this terrible picture, of what Saul is capable of doing. And so those of you who you know about what happens toward the end of 1 Samuel, and you read what, what we read in, in chapters 9 and 10, Saul is given a new heart. And it's hard to understand what this means. The tension comes from thinking that maybe Saul is an Old Testament believer. He has been given a new heart, we read, after all. But wondering if that is so, how the Spirit of the Lord could depart from him. And quite honestly and personally, I've found myself going back and forth about Saul over the years, being uncertain about his eternal status. Thankfully, however, that is not up to me. I can ponder it, I can wonder about it, but I don't get to determine it. That's in the Lord's hands, and Saul is either with the Lord in heaven or he is not. But one thing that helps us in our confusion is, is if we consider a similar passage that you can find in Judges chapter 16 having to do with Samson. In Judges 16 uh, verse 20, when Samson has been betrayed by Delilah after telling her the secret of his strength, we read there, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, of course, the language in Judges 16 verse 20 is not identical to what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And yet it's similar enough to help us interpret verse 14 of our passage. And so if you, like me, are holding out that hope that Saul was, in fact, an Old Testament believer, then verse 14 doesn't necessarily count that out. Consider that, that Samson, rascal that he was, is included in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The other thing to consider is that at least one aspect of the giving of the Spirit to a king at his anointing was the endowment of the king with the gifts that were necessary to carry out his duties as king. 
Saul was the first king of Israel. There was no predecessor, no forerunner for him. There was no precedent of a royal court. Saul had to kind of make it up as he went along. And so he needed this special endowment of the Holy Spirit in order to do that. He had to have these gifts that were necessary for him to carry out his duties as king. And so we can't make a one-to-one equation of the giving of the Holy Spirit to Saul with the giving of the Holy Spirit to New Testament believers. And if God, we can read in Judges 16 verse 20, can leave uh, Samson, and Samson can can still be considered and described as an Old Testament believer in Christ one that we can be certain is with the Lord in heaven, then possibly the same could be said of Saul. But at any rate, once David had been anointed as king and received the Spirit, which we read about in last week's passage, in the first 13 verses of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, the Spirit now departs from Saul. On to the second challenge that we... uh, confront in verse 14. What are we to make where it says in verse 14 that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul? Well, there are some things that we have to say right out. We know that God is not the author of of sin, of evil. He is not the one who created evil. That blame does not rest at his feet. And so we can understand this to a limited degree as God giving Saul over, possibly only for a time, to manifold temptations and the corruptions of his own heart to chasten him for his former sins. Some see this this spirit, a harmful spirit, the King James describes it as an evil spirit from the Lord, as, as a descent of Saul into madness. That emotionally and mentally he has completely lost it. But there's more, that's more of a passive way of understanding the phrase in verse 14. The phrase itself shows that this spirit from the Lord is active in tormenting Saul. Now, it's difficult to know whether this is some type of a literal spirit, like a demon or a malignant emotional or mental state or disposition. It certainly seems like Saul becomes increasingly unstable. But whatever it is, it came from God to Saul. This is simply stating the truth that while God is not the author of evil, verse 14 makes clear that all things, whether they are good or injurious to us, all things happen according to His perfect plan. Nothing is outside of God's control. And so in an ultimate sense, this has happened. This tormenting spirit has happened because it is in accordance with God's will. The rioting and the looting of the last few weeks hopefully have helped us to be convinced that chaos and our anarchy are not what we want what we want. And if God is not in control of everything, even harmful and evil things, then we are in chaos. We don't want more of what we've seen in our nation and even in other nations around the world. We don't want chaos, and we know that God is not the God of chaos. Well, God has has departed from Saul, as the author of 1 Samuel puts it in chapter 18, verse 12. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God has completely abandoned Saul. 
God will provide relief to Saul from his torments. God, the one from whom this harmful spirit came to Saul, is also the one from whom Saul receives relief. And he does so through the person of David, Jesse's son. And yet the one whose music makes Saul well is going to become himself a source of torment for Saul later on. So let's look at the second point of the sermon today, good good gifts from above. Despite the fact that God has left Saul to be tormented by a spirit, Saul is not left without means of relief. Verse 15 gives external confirmation of Saul's torment. His servants provide an objective perspective on the situation. Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. The author in verse 14 states it, and those who are around Saul, they recognize it. They see it. This is not an internal uh, torment that is invisible to those outside of Saul. People who are outside of him, they recognize that Saul is being tormented. And they want to help their king. And so Saul, they tell Saul in verse 16, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. This may not be the case for, for everyone here, but for some of you, you understand the, the therapeutic nature of music, don't you? There are some of you who play instruments, and others of you who just simply love to listen to beautiful music, or, or music that you consider to be beautiful that perhaps others may not. But many people, both here and around the world, they have recognized that there is something about certain forms of music that bring comfort and bring peace. And we have to say that it's all according to God's design. We don't know how it works exactly. We, we don't fully understand how God has caused this to be. But we've probably, most of us here, have experienced it in some form or other in our lives. The, the torments from the harmful spirit were not without remedy. God, though he sent this spirit to torment Saul, he has also provided a means for relief. The world is not as bad as it possibly could be. Imagine for, for just a moment a world that is not the recipient, recipient of God's common grace, but only under the curse. Imagine a world in which God completely obscures and hides the countenance of his face. A world in which there is no good thing from above. That is a world that cannot continue on in existence. Even in Saul's day, music therapy was recognized as a way to bring relief to people who were suffering. And in our day, by God's grace, people have been able to discover other ways to bring relief to people who are suffering. Saul concurs with their request, and he tells them in verse 17, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And the word that's translated provide in verse 17 is the same word that is used in verse 1 when God tells Samuel, For I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Saul is asking his men here to identify someone who can play the lyre, a string, uh, stringed harp-like instrument to help him when the harmful spirit torments him. And immediately one of his servants knows such a man. In verse 18, the servant tells the king, 
Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. This as yet unnamed man has all of the qualifications and then some. It's almost as if the servant is describing a future king rather than simply someone who's going to play music for Saul. Somehow, between what we read in the beginning of chapter 16, or perhaps sometime earlier and now, David has already demonstrated his military prowess in battle, in addition to his skill on the harp. And this servant has been witness to it. He's seen it. He seems to know it. It may be that this takes place later in chronological history, perhaps after David had already faced Goliath. And you can see in that account uh, in chapter 17, when you read that, it's strange that, that Saul doesn't seem to know who David is. If David's already been in his court, if David already, already has been appointed as his, his armor bearer, then why doesn't Saul who know, know who he is? It could be that the author has decided to take things out of chronological order while they are still historical and place them here for theological purposes. Although that's difficult to know and only speculation at best. It sounds unlikely to us, but when David goes to Saul later on, who is encamped with the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah, Saul has no idea who he is. That could be the effects of his madness. It could be, as we've said, because the author of 1 Samuel has rearranged things to fit a theological purpose rather than a chronological one. And Saul agrees that this man seems to be the ideal candidate. So he sends messengers to Jesse in verse 19 saying, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. David is now doubly chosen. First by God to be king, and second by the current king himself. Jesse, David's father, understands when the messenger gets there to him that you do not come into the presence of the king without bringing gifts. And so he sends David with a donkey, and this donkey is laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat. And he sent all of this with David, his son, to Saul. Now this sending of David to Saul had a double purpose, known only to God and perhaps to David. If David was putting the pieces of the puzzle together... This secondary purpose was to train David in the ways of being a king. And we must also very swiftly add the ways not to be a king. David, according to the servant's description of him, he's got a number of qualities that make him a good candidate to be king. But he did not grow up in the royal family like Jonathan did. There's still many things that he doesn't know and probably can't imagine that a king has to deal with. And so as flawed as Saul is, David can learn a thing or two from him. But more central to our passage, David is being used by God to be a blessing to Saul. Even though, in spite of the fact that God had sent a spirit to torment Saul. Now think about this in this way. This is somewhat similar to the way that God showed grace to Adam and Eve in the garden following their fall into sin. Immediately after cursing them, immediately after discovering them in their sin, calling them out in their sin, cursing them for their sin, what does God do? As soon as his speech has ended about about his curse to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, God clothes them in the skins of animals. He covers their shame. 
He is gracious to them. And, and we may very well there have the first animal sacrifice in the history of mankind. And it's used, in a sense, to cover or to atone for their shame. He took the lives of animals in order for Adam and Eve to be covered. And additionally, he could have left them there to starve and to die out. Which, in some ways, we look back on things and maybe think maybe that would have been the right idea. Just let it all die off, the human race. But God chose not to do that. He made provision for them to have children and to grow food from the ground, though in both cases it would be through great labor and effort. Well, Saul too had sinned against God grievously. And God had every right to remove Saul from the throne and to cast him out and to remove him from the face of the earth or at least to leave him in his own misery with no relief. Instead, God graciously gave Saul relief in the person of David. Now, it wasn't complete relief, not at least in this life, but no relief in this life is complete, is it? But David was a blessing to Saul for a time. Verse 21 says that David came to Saul and he entered into his service, and Saul loved David. He loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul wants this to become a permanent arrangement, and so he sends messengers to Jesse to tell them, uh, to tell him rather, to let David remain in his service, for he has found favor in my sight. And verse 23 ends the chapter by saying, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Remember this, brothers and sisters. That God loved us before we fell into sin. He loved us before we caused him to curse us. And God, who is the fountain of life, continues to show love to all of his creatures by showering down rain upon the just and the unjust alike. Without discrimination, he does this. He showers down common grace, grace that is common to all of mankind, that is undeserved and therefore is gracious. He takes care of the birds of the air. How much more will he care for the crown of his creation, who are of far greater value than birds? We are created, all mankind, all human beings are created in his image after all, aren't we? But God, we must also very quickly acknowledge, provides in a special way for his church. To whom, this church is the one to whom God gives all things for their good. And the chief good, if I can put it that way, that God gives to His church is the gift of Jesus Christ, His Son. And the gift of His Spirit to His people. David proved to be a great gift from God to Saul. An undeserved gift from God to Saul. At least until Saul completely turned against him. Jesus Christ, David's son, yet David's Lord, is the greatest gift God has ever given. And he has given him to you and to me and to everyone who believes. As James says in his letter, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. From the least of those gifts, 
whatever that may be for you, it's probably chocolate for me, to the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are gifts, gracious, undeserved, unmerited. And we cannot let our, ourselves begin to believe that we have done something to deserve any gift from the Lord. All the gifts that we have in this life, all of the blessings, no matter how small, they come from God. And every creature, animal and human alike, benefits from them. But God's greatest gift, His perfect gift, is Jesus Christ, who alone provides salvation for everyone who believes in Him. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful to You, O Lord, that You have not left us here to wallow in our sin and misery without hope. You have given us many good and precious gifts that have eased the pain and the sorrow of living life in this cursed-filled world. We have deserved none of them, O Lord. We don't deserve the rain that showers down upon the land. We don't deserve the shade of a tree in the heat of the day. We don't deserve the comforts of home or a comfortable bed at night on which we can lay. We don't deserve friendship. We don't deserve the joy that we have despite the fact that the misery of this life is vast. And most definitely, O oh Lord, we do not deserve Christ Jesus. We are not worthy to have had Him come to live and to die for us. But we pray that You would help us to remember all of these things. When we are tempted to believe that we have done something good in this life to deserve the good gifts that you give to us. Please gently remind us, gently humble us, and help us to remember that we've done nothing. But we pray, Lord, that you would also teach us to be grateful for every good thing. Certainly, teach us to be grateful for the great gifts that you've given us, but also for the small ones for life and for breath, for strength, for companionship, for love. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us and for the mercy that you have shown to sinners who do not deserve your grace. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to walk in accord with your word and we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.